0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: American life these days is characterized by polarization, separation, worldviews so mutually oppositional they've been compared to pre-Civil War days. Today's guest shares his insights into the fundamental ideas that characterize and have historically characterized the American schism. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm pleased to welcome Seth David Radwell to the show today to talk about his important book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. Seth David Radwell holds a master's degree in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. An internationally known business executive, Radwell has served as president of E-Scholastic, the digital arm of the global children's publishing and education company, and as president of Bookspan Bertelsmann, where he developed book clubs for diverse readership. Seth David Radwell, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Renee. It's, It's such a pleasure to be here with you this morning.
1: Before we get to your book, tell us a little about yourself. Who or what were some of the significant influences on your own intellectual development?
0: Well, most of my professional career has been in business uh, as running and building consumer brands, first in publishing and then in consumer products. I was most recently CEO of a large uh, acne brand in the U.S., the biggest one in in the States, and during those uh, those different experiences, I had wonderful chances to build teams and companies and I focused, I was a specialist in marketing. But at the same time, I've always had, since my Harvard days, I've always had this deep interest in political discourse and the public policy arena. And as a consequence of that interest, I've been a, an avid reader of nonfiction, especially history uh, philosophy, uh, intellectual ideas, th- those types of topics. And it was only w- with that background of, of, of fascination in these areas, it was only a couple of years ago when I noticed how poorly the public discourse had become. In fact, I, my, in my view, the entire political debate had collapsed. And I decided to then uh, stop what I was doing professionally uh, to focus on on this project, American Schism.
1: Well, to stop your ongoing professional activities or to curtail them very much is real commitment. Are you worried about America's future?
0: Absolutely, Renee. I mean, what really motivated me was I couldn't imagine, as I watched as Political discourse collapsed, and increasingly, as the search, the pursuit of objective truth, which is kind of the foundation of modern society, uh, which I'll, I'll come back to in a second, but I watched that start to disappear. And what I noticed was that my peers, c level executives in business, who I I've been in touch with, I have a great network in the business community. I've been fortunate to have built a wonderful group of of, of peers. But I watched over the last few years as the idea of political discussion had become a third rail. That, in other words, they preferred to keep their heads in the sand as opposed to discussing something that might be controversial or bring on the wrath of some group. And I said to my I thought to myself, the cocktail party moment, if you will, was when I thought to myself, if we can't discuss these issues with a rational perspective. And if, and if we let rancor and acrimony crowd out all of all of this debate our democracy is at risk I mean how are we going to hand a democracy to our children and so i, I would at that point which is about two and a half three years ago I, I started on what I call an investigative tracing I wanted to find out where were where the roots of our divisions came from I was convinced that they had strong antecedents in our history and that investigation took me back to the Enlightenment.
1: All right. Well, that's the perfect beginning. Let's start with the fundamental idea, thesis of your book, which is that there are two conflicting ideas, radical Enlightenment and moderate Enlightenment, and that they have been struggling for prominence throughout American history. So tell us what is the difference between the two? Uh, sure. and we'll start with that.
0: We'll start with that. Okay, great. Well, this is really important because you nailed it. This, this division, this uh, schism that started during the Enlightenment has played a role throughout our history, and it's quite important to understand. So what is it? Well, as many of your listeners probably know, during the Enlightenment, the political construct was, was the social contract, that's what the great thinkers, whether it was Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau in Europe or our founders, uh, what what they were focused on. And it turns out they were two radically different visions for what America could be amongst our founders. On one hand, you had Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Paine, who are called or what I call the radical enlighteners, and by the way, this framework of radical versus moderate enlightenment actually isn't mine. It's it's borrowed from a professor who's a great expert from Oxford and Princeton, the Enlightenment, a guy named Jonathan Israel, who who I've been in touch with and who actually wrote the forward for the book. But in any case, let me explain the, the difference between these two visions. So you've got these ra- the, like the radical enlightenment, and then you have people like John Adams. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, ultimately George Washington, who are part of what are, is called the moderate enlightenment. So, and the difference is the following. I'm going to simplify it because it's actually quite nuanced, as, as you know when you read the book, but there are two fundamental differences between these two groups. The radicals believe that the only legitimate form of government in a social contract was a bottom-up government, representative democracy of the people, that the people had had to had to form the government and have a strong voice in the government. On the contrary, the moderates believe the role of governing was 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 to be done by people who were enlightened like themselves at the time, the aristocrats, the people who were educated, and what today we would call the elites, and and. You know, famously, um, Alexander Hamilton would be a great example of this. He was a genius and had become a, 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 a he was self made originally, but became quite an, a quote unquote aristocrat and was in that cer- that circle in New York. And he believed that government required the best and the brightest, and it was the responsibility of the educated to govern on behalf of the masses. And so, so that the notion of what form of go- the government actually takes, uh, whether it's a democratic republic or whether it's an, what I would call an aristocratic republic was the first major element of the schism. And I, I'll come back to it in, the, in a second, but that just to, 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 to ground it for your listeners. The second one had to do with the nature of religion. So the radicals, especially the French radicals, had documented to a great degree the, the, the aspect of history where the monarchy, the kings, would collude with the clergy in order to together keep control and oppress the people. In fact, one of the, the famous French moderate enlighteners, Voltaire, had um a wonderful quote that reflects this thinking he 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 wrote that si dieu n'existait pas il faudrait l'inventer which means if god didn't exist we'd have to invent him indicating that religion was an important element to keep people moral and in line and participating productively in society and the moderates had that view whereas it was the radicals who really believed in complete separation of civic affairs from religious faith-based affairs what today we call the separation of church and state in fact um jefferson wrote uh, that not only in this new country we were forming should we have freedom of religion but we should have freedom from religion so, so those two differences, amongst many others, formed the basis of what was what to become the first set of political parties and the first real contest, the real, the real contending vision of what our country should be. And um, what's, what's fascinating about uh, this period of our history, Renee, and as you know, I go into this in some detail in the book, is the 12 years between the Declaration of Independence, which was a, an expression of the radical Enlightenment school, And the Constitution, 12 years later, there was a tremendous swing, a a shift from this radical mindset to the much more moderate mindset. Now, that shift is described in great detail in the book, and I think readers need to understand it because it became a, a model, a pattern that would happen throughout our history. This shift between different aspects, different poles of what our democracy, what our republic is all about. And so I'd love to tell you a little bit more about what was important in that shift. but, But suffice it to say for now that the fundamental constitution that emerged 12 years later is a much more radical document relative to the declaration. The declaration says all are created equal, which was at its time the most radical document ever written. I mean, think about it. All men are created equal endowed by their creators with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet by the Constitution, much of the Constitution, while it did have a House of Representatives that was proportionally democratic, most of the structure in the Constitution had strong guardrails to protect against democracy because people like Hamilton and Adams and other moderates feared democracy. They eschewed democracy. They felt that democracy was an expression of the mob, and uh, the guardrails were such like the Senate, and the strong executive and the president, and in fact the fundamental fact that at the time only white men with property could vote. So the Constitution was much more of a radical. I'm sorry, of a moderated moderate like right. docu- expression than was the the the, the original promise of america the declaration and our history of america reflects that swing back and forth
1: yes and that's certainly an issue today uh, structurally and we'll we'll get back to that yes uh, but but first talk a little bit about how these two forms of enlightenment are integrated into today's tribal identity based uh, arguments and animus
0: Right, well, so uh, this this back and forth between these two poles during our founding, um, which again was very much influenced by the great thinkers in in Europe, ended up creating, for example, the first real bitterness. I mean, today, today we think we're divided. We have, let's call it, tremendous tribal conflict, so to speak. As you correctly note, the 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 enmity, the rancor that developed between what became the Federalists of Hamilton and the jeffersonian democratic republicans was so intense that uh, there were very there were very uh, uh, strong similarities to the dialogue today we didn't have twitter but but there were pamphlets that were written constantly that were v- extremely critical of the the opposing points of view and there was a lot of what we today would call yellow journalism was things reported that were based on half truths or ex- exaggerated ideas so it, in some ways, it was very similar to what we see today. And what the book American Schism shows, Rene, is that over the course of our history, we've always had strong disagreements about policy issues. And that it's usually, that that's healthy, that's normal, and it's important for an open society. But it's when that debate became uh, filled with uh, uh unreason with rancor with acrimony with hate or with with overly emotional content that's when we had trouble like the civil war so in other words there's always a balance in this debate a balance of elements that are based on reason and empirical observation what we call facts or truths as well as emotions, there's always a balance, but but it gets out of whack sometimes. And it certainly got out of whack in some periods of time during the founding period. And I would argue as I do in the book that it's out of whack today. We have today that we, we've abandoned uh, rational uh, ideas in our debate and we focus on these emotional triggers which is entirely counterproductive. I'll come back to that. But, but to answer your question, this pattern is very important to understand. And I and I believe that, um, you know, why is the book so focused on the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment, it's important for your listeners who may be not as familiar with history to understand, is really the framework for the entire modern society. I mean, as, as, a, as a way of thinking about it, sometimes I, I when I give talks to students, I say that if you Measure prosperity in society from any objective measure. Let's take life expectancy. 200 years ago, life expectancy across, across the glo- globe was 30 years. Today, as we know, it's over 70 years. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world the population lived in extreme poverty. Today, about one-fifth of the world lives in that same level of poverty. So my point being is the the modern framework that that was birthed during the enlightenment ended up creating tremendous prosperity because of its focus on two things, empirical observation and reason. And yet one of the, the, the motivations for me writing this book was that I feel that those are at risk today where many are willing to throw that away in the name of some faith or some cult or some uh, 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 in-group that they feel very good to be part of and enjoy attacking an out-group. That that tribal nature is threatening what is, in fact, the modern structure of the scientific method and reason debate that have served us so well.
1: Well, it goes very deep, doesn't it? Because you use the word modern to... uh, talk about the Enlightenment and the time after that. Right. But we are postmodernists today. And truth is uh, much less agreed upon and, and in fact, even valued. Everyone is entitled to have his or her or their own truth. And instead of um, facts and history, we have narrative. So, correct. yes. So,
0: yes, you're, uh, you're, how... you're hitting, by the way, you're hitting, you're, you're, you've nailed the core issue, which is the, in this postmodern world. And in what in the book <clears throat> I sometimes call it, this lay postmodernism that we live in today, everyone's allowed to have their own truth. But you know what? <clears throat> There's aspects of the postmodern movement that have been tremendously valuable. They've brought. I mean, the whole intent of of the of the the philosophical postmodern movement, which has affected as we you know every every form of society, architecture, art, history, narrative, as you, as you point out, um, the 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 intent was to point out how uh, biased uh, the tra- traditional narratives are, and how important it is to bring other voices and other ideas into the conversation, and from that perspective. I think postmodern thinking is very valuable. But here's what but but we sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater. I hate to use that analogy, but but there's a wonderful book out now called The Constitution of Knowledge by a, game, a guy named John Rauch. And he explains in the book how we've built this constitution of knowledge by using a structure that focuses on transparency, testing of ideas, openness, uh, peer review, expertise, and that nothing is, is is everything is provisionally true. In other words, an idea is true until it's proven not true, but that we can't throw out the entire constitution of knowledge because it's, we have different narratives. And so that's where it gets very tricky. Uh, th- like if, if I say to you, this is a glass of water, and I hold it up to you and I say, and you say, no, it's not. The whole premise of our modern society is the following: I should be able to demonstrate to you that there are, in fact, two hydrogen molecules for every oxygen model and they're bound. And here's and this is why it's water. And then at the end of the demonstration, you, being a rational person who's not emotionally uh, tied to to this, should be able to say, "Ah, you're right. It's a, it's a glass of water." <laughs> so so that we need that kind of uh, reasoned fact-based empirical approach to building truth to be able to be able to conquer problems like pandemics and to develop vaccines and to solve things like climate change we need this framework of the constitution of knowledge and so my my thrust of the argument in the book is that yes postmodern thinking is is valuable but it doesn't mean we can th- completely throw out objective truth. Everyone doesn't get their own facts. As I used to say in business, often Renee, when teams would present ideas for marketing, they would present these these great wonderful ideas and plans, and I would always say, I would always say, you know, uh, in God we trust, but everyone else has to bring the data. And in other words, I, I want to see the data. The data matter. And I feel like in debate today too much, the data seem not to matter.
1: Now, that's postmodernism, but but there have been more traditional forms of, of counter-enlightenment, of challenges yes. to enlightenment reasoning. Tell us about those.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked, because on one hand— American schism is very much this tracing of the, the, as we talked about before, these two enlightenment visions, this radical versus moderate. But there's another struggle. There's another uh, big pendulum, if you will, in the book. And that's between the whole notion of enlightenment thinking and counter-enlightenment, as you point out. So starting, you know, the the founding of our country was probably the most secular period of our history. Uh, Soon after, there was a period called the Second Great Awakening which was a very important movement in many ways. I mean, it really was uh, a religious revival, but in many, so it brought faith back into the, uh, into the conversation and, and on the front burner, if you will. But it, it also had some very important uh, aspects to it, the Second Great Awakening. For example, it gave women a voice, a, a significant voice in the, the ideas of the day. In the founding generation, most of the actors in the U.S. were men. Uh, and women, because their men, the, men, the men of the households were working, it was the women who often went to the original revival meetings and brought their families. So w- women became active leaders in society. Number one, number two, those many of those same women also led a strong uh, abolitionist push. As, as we know, we probably should have mentioned the great contradiction of our of our founding, of course. As I talked about before, we had this Declaration of Independence which said all are created equal and yet half the states had had chattel slavery so so the slavery and and african americans are and how they were treated over the course of our history is the great contradiction of our founding and it was during the second great awakening when abolitionists really Gained steam uh, as as did other movements like temperance because many of the men drank too much and the, the so that all, that movement also gained steam during that time. But 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 the side effect the 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 the, the, the arrival of the Second Great Awakening also challenged this Enlightenment framework because it said you know reason is not the most important thing we need to have faith and it brought counter enlightenment you know faith based arguments back to the fray and that also has been a pattern in america over our history this idea of using you know science and reason and observation versus you, f- how much faith affects our public realm and in the book as, as you've seen I, I struggle with that and point out w- how important of course faith is in all of our life in many of our lives but that when faith interferes in the civic realm in a way that has undue influence for one group or is persecutory towards another, that's a problem. And that's counter-enlightenment. That's not what the Enlighteners intended. And so counter-enlightenment, to your point, is a big factor. And in fact, uh, I would say it's the counter-enlightenment strength that's very relevant today in this tribalism we described before. In other words, people won't believe that that this is a glass of water, as Trump famously said, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still support him. And there's a lot of evidence that people will do things that are non-rational, that defy reason, uh, like all the conspiracy theories. Of course, we see though that's 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 classic. Uh, if I can use the term counter enlightenment, and so that's a big part of the of the story as well.
1: Now, the co- counter enlightenment was not exclusive to America. Um, or the various forms of of counter-enlightenment. How does the concept of American exceptionalism fit into your perspective?
0: Oh, I I love that question. So before (laughs) before I answer that, I will say that the counter-enlightenment in France is what led to the collapse of the revolution into the reign of terror, which is discussed in great detail in the book because it's important. In the U.S., our counter-enlightenment movement wasn't as destructive, but it had some destructive elements, which are discussed. But your, your question about, you know, American exceptionalism is really great, because after doing the tracing of the book, in the third part of the book, I, I, I pose three core questions about why America is so unique. And at the at the end of the day, it boils down to what makes American exceptionalism. And I would argue, and as, as I do in, in American Schism, is that it's not about a military strength- or our prowess, or it's about two aspects of what we've been able to do over our history, which have made us the beacon of hope in the world. One is that we're the best example of self-government in the history of the planet. And even with all our flaws, with all our problems in our government, we still are the best example of self-government that's ever existed. And we've managed as as, as Benjamin Franklin famously challenged us, We've managed to keep the republic, despite almost losing it numerous times during our history. And the the second reason that makes America America exceptional, in my view, is we've had a model of meritocracy, which means that you didn't have to be noble. You didn't have to be of noble birth to be successful. That based on hard work and, and ingenuity and our own personal development, we could create a, a wonderful life, that model of, of uh, anyone can make it here, so to speak, uh, which I, call, I think is grounded in our, in our model of meritocracy, that is also what makes America exceptional, what makes us the envy of the world. And precisely as I said before, it's, I feel like if we lose those two things, we'll lose American exceptionalism. And I fear that the last couple of years, it seems that we are.
1: Well, when when you mention the uh, Declaration of Independence uh, asserting that uh, humans are all equal, uh, yes. all, all men are created equal, we we won't get into the female side of the equation. Um, yes. But, but that what what they meant, we believe, is equality before the law. That's correct. Equality. Correct. And by the
0: way, in the book, I point out that in fact Jefferson's notion, as as is becomes evident from his notes and all that went into writing the Declaration, and of course this is debated by Jeffersonian scholars to this day, but I assert that he 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 meant all people. Not only men and women, but African Americans. I believe he 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 fundamentally believed they were created equal, despite the contradiction of him being a slave owner personally, and that's discussed in some length. And many Jeffersonian scholars have discussed that for their whole careers. But 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 yes, that was where we started out in the Declaration.
1: But so equality before the law. I think that's something that uh, very few people would disagree with in democratic countries but that concept has morphed into equity egalitarianism and you write about equality of voice right. so what what's the difference How, what what are all these equal terms. Right.
0: So I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. That's a big part of, of the third part of the book is explaining this. So a qual, what, what did the, and I think the, from my perspective, the, the, the great contribution of the French Enlighteners, people like Diderot and, and Old Back and and, mm-hmm. uh, and many of them, Condorcet who wrote the original French constitution in 1792, as well as the Declaration of Rights of Man, that their contribution was really defining this equality more specifically. So, of course, the Declaration of Independence did one very uh, important thing that, that was maybe the, the, mo- the most important. It, Jefferson replaced the word property that men in, in Locke's, John Locke, the British philosopher's original foundation, and in much of the Scottish Enlightenment, the idea was that the inalienable rights that men uh, had in a social contract were life, liberty, and property. And property at the time was quite interesting because it was, who had property? Well, the wealthy had property. The aristocrats had property. Most most people, the masses, didn't have property. So it may seem trivial, but by Jefferson replacing property with the pursuit of happiness, which is a much more egalitarian idea, everyone can pursue happiness. Everyone has the right to pursue happiness. Think about that. That's a much more radical Enlightenment notion. Now, to your point, how do we think about equality before the law as one thing? But also the the right of to pursue happiness. And this becomes very much a foundation of why everyone has the right to opportunity, what we call today equality of opportunity, that that in in I'm not sure if you're familiar with or your listeners are with John Rawls, who's a great philosopher from the 70s. But his the theory of justice, he lays out what the criteria are for equality of opportunity, and it, meaning that everyone has to have the same starting line. And what I argue in the book is that our meritocracy needs to have as close as we can get to the ideal. It's never perfect of equality of opportunity, which today we don't have, we're moving away from. So, so the, the, what the French Enlighteners said was, for in order for a democratic republic to work, first of all, you need, and for people to keep their inalienable rights and to be, have a voice in government, you need an educated populace. So guess what? One of the responsibilities of the state is to ensure that that citizens have a civic education and can participate, can know how to advocate for their interests. So that, that's ironic because uh, I, I argue in the book that, that of course, civic education, which was important when you and I were growing up, has become crowded out by the focus on science, technology, and math. Not that those aren't important, they are, but civic education is quite important as well. And and so the French Enlighteners laid out in the, in the 1792 Constitution all of the elements of education, that needed to be provided a secular education to citizens. Number one, number two, they believed as there's a great uh, French radical Baron Dolbach, He's a, he was an aristocrat originally, but he 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 believed that to your point, while everyone was all, all humans were born with the capacity with the capacity of reason and empirical observation. In other words, equal. That they didn't stay equal their whole lives. People developed their skills, and some became some were pretty, and some were smart, and some and some became wealthy. And uh, but the, the whole purpose of the of the social contract was to ensure that if you didn't have enough, if you couldn't succeed in society as a self as an independent being, the state helped you. That there was a safe what we call today a safety net, and mm-hmm. that in fact the goal was to try to get everyone. Uh, able to pursue as best as they could their innate abilities to develop those. That was the role of the state. My point being is that I think there's a very clear uh, discussion of what equality means in in its different aspects in the book. And I think that's very important for us to understand. It's about equality before the law. But, But I think the French Enlighteners argued, as did others, that it was also about equality of opportunity. And, and that's part of what I des- I describe when I talk about a meritocracy.
1: Yeah, meritocracy is being challenged now as well. Um, egalitarian societies. Now is that, in your view, the same as e- a, a form of equality? Yes. So
0: this is, a, this is a great question. Again, absolutely meritocracies are, are being challenged. There, are, there have been books that have been written about how our meritocratic model is, is, is no, is, has failed. So I, I differ, differentiate between two things, which I think it, it's a useful uh, framework. There's a notion of equality of opportunity, as I mentioned, and equality of outcomes in other words ever since the development of of marxist thinking in the 19th century and its its many its thousands of permutations there's a notion that maybe one of the roles of government in a in a contract is to make sure everybody has the same outcome the same and i very much argue <clears throat> excuse me in the book that that's not the american ideal that you know in a in a capitalist country we value how achievements are measured and rewarded. And in fact, that is one of the f- fundamental... Qu- I mentioned there that there were three core questions. That's one of them. How in a society do we measure achievement and recognize re- and reward achievement? And in a system of equality of outcomes, uh, it's very different than an equality, an equality or opportunity, which I would argue at our best we've done at times. Like, for example, after World War II, with things like the GI Bill when we enabled all of these GIs to come back and start productive lives in, in the country. And other, and other times in, in, I think, LBJ's years, we really, we made a, a huge leap forward on the recognition that we weren't doing very well at achieving equality of opportunity. So I think at times we've done it, and that's very different than saying everybody has to have the same outcome, which is is very much advocated by certain countries and by by certain uh, philosophers and political actors. So I think that's what's important to differentiate. And I guess if you wanted to define me in... Political terms that would probably make me a centrist because I very much believe in the importance of the establishment in recognizing and and institutions in recognizing achievement and distributing rewards that people work hard for and earn. But but I I, I don't I reject the notion of equality of outcomes. I explain in the book that uh, one of the reasons why uh, it's I reject it is because uh, it's in practice it's been shown. Uh, to to never achieve its desired goals because invariably corruption and the, the the new capitalists become the bureaucrats who who make the rules and so th- there's as Winston Churchill famously said and you know I, I could not couldn't have said it better I, you know democracy is the worst form of government except that every other one is is you know it's better than any other form that we've found so it's a little bit of that if you will Renee uh, that I'm getting at but in the book I describe this in more detail.
1: When you and I talk about these issues it, we our assumption unexpressed is that equality and opportunity and egalitarianism all has to do with individuals uh, yes. we we can celebrate individual differences yes but There's another way that other democracies uh, look at it, and and some in the United States look at it as well, which is by groups. So that if group X has Y level of uh, income, let's say, or uh, educational achievement, that compared with group Y that's doing better or worse means or is interpreted to mean – it's It's more or less fair, more or less equal. What do you think about that?
0: I think we have to be very careful it in, in in confounding when we talk about group differences and things this this has been an area that's led to not only very um you know as, as you know uh vociferous debate, but very misguided policies and and much much persecution and 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 uh, um, xenophobia. So I, I think of course all humans are different across all measures and and groups have differences and individuals have differences. The point is to try to achieve uh, equalities of opportunity for everyone irrespective of what group they belong to and therefore i don't think what group people or uh, what, what what whether they're 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 you know of a certain religion faith or or racial background or ethnic background that shouldn't uh, that shouldn't be the, f- the the first element of of how they're viewed or judged in society and of course you know that sounds very very uh, uh um what's the word yeah it, it, obvious but. But, you know, the notion of, let's say, colorblindness or faith. But but we, and our history of the country has been one of where we say these, these principles, like in the Declaration, or we have, let's say, in, in Reconstruction, which I talk a lot about in the book, we have these new amendments that for the first time give equal rights, quote unquote, de jure, according to the law, to African Americans. And by 1868, 80% of former slaves were voting. Uh, but but that's that's far from the end of the story because we know that de jure and de facto are different things. So after Reconstruction fails ten years later by 1878, and the Ku Klux Klan is going rampant, and there are new codes, that were the, the precursor of Jim Crow laws, are an instituted. All of a sudden, from 80% in 1868, in 1878, five percent of African Americans are voting in the South. What a pendulum swing that is. So my point being is that getting to equality of opportunity is a lifelong struggle. It's, our, our, it's, it's like the same way as we want to perfect our democracy. So it, it's never, it's a glass half full, if half empty, I'm saying, Renee, Egalitarianism is a principle that we can work towards, and we're never quite there. But I, I see the glass as half full. In other words, I wouldn't throw out the system because it's not perfect, and mm-hmm. that's what, 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 I as I discuss in the book, what I think is frustrating about coming back to our debate today, and maybe this is a good transition point, is that both the extremes, the extreme right and the extreme left, are their, their, their approaches are counterproductive. The extreme right, in my view, is completely willing to ignore truth. In other words, ignore, live in their own reality. Like, uh, you know, the, the big lie that Trump won the election, which, of course, we know is is a fabrication and one that's gotten enormous uh, promotion. On, on the left, there there's this notion, which is sometimes called cancel culture, or, uh, of uh, uh, basically of shaming people for for not having or being self-righteous about not having correct political views and, 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 that, and thus forcing people to be silent. I mean, it's happening in universities, it's, been, it's written. My argument in the book is that 70% of Americans, according to my research, are part of what I call the frustrated majority, meaning that they believe that neither of these extremes represent their views. And, but yet, their views are being crowded out because of the nature of media emphasizing these extremes, you know, the, the, there's been some study on this, and this seventy percent or more frustrated majority believe that our uh, we need to compromise on public policy issues, that we need to listen to each other, and it really reflects the approach that that many are now taking to reject the political discourse, the collapse of it, and uh, to try to rehabilitate it in recent years. I'm part of a group, uh, Renee, called Braver Angels which is getting people of different political persuasions left and right to talk to each other and to listen and to explore issues. And I'm doing a lot of work with this group because it's very much consistent with how I view the problems in the the book American Schism. So so I I think to to your question, I think the dialogue today is this tribal, uh, if you will, uh, fight, the struggle where Symbols mean a lot as opposed to substance, where people are triggered to support their in-group and attack the out-group because it gives them incredible uh, uh, endorphin rushes. I mean, we, we all know, we all have these natural human impulses, which are part of our evolutionary history of feeling good when we attack an out-group and... When we're part of an in-group, we all know this because if you've ever been at a sports stadium, you know how good it feels to root for your team. So I think that's human. But what I point out in the book is that that's not a good mindset in which to make public policy. That's left for the sports arena. So we have to change how we talk to each other. And in fact, the third part of the book has two major changes it talks about. One is a set of structural changes, which I think are pretty straightforward. And the other is a mindset change in how we have a dialogue. And that's the mindset change is the area that I'm working on with people like um, uh, 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 this Braver Angels group. And it's also, if you will, Renee, it's my call to action for people who are in the frustrated majority who reject the extreme left and right. I'm asking them to reclaim their voice, that even though social media may give more attention to the people who are screaming and to the people who are outrageous, we have to throw the lunatics out of their leadership in the asylum and take it over and run it ourselves. And that's what I mean by fighting unreason with reason.
1: So apropos of the lunatics <laughs> running the asylum. Right. Why why are Americans so angry? And and not only in political discourse, although Trump won in 2016 uh, yes. on a wave of voter anger, and actually it isn't it isn't just Americans who are so angry, but but Americans are more angry, it seems, than than other countries because besides the political context. There, there are attacks on flight attendants yes. there are r- random shootings yes. there seems to be a level of and maybe it comes from your frustrated majority I don't know what just let's just look at the emotion um yeah. what what's it about why is everyone so angry?
0: there's no question that there's been a brewing rage uh, amongst many Americans for many many years and I try to do some analysis of this. I think it goes back to really uh, way before Trump. I I think that you know, since ever since uh, the 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 last fifty years, let's say, our the establishment in America has followed. A framework of global capitalism. It's sometimes called by by thinkers neoliberalism. This Mm -hmm. this model of free markets and it's and and competition and no government regulation or as little as possible, as as Reagan famously said, you know, government is is the problem. Uh, That framework, that neoliberalist framework, I believe, has left many Americans behind, and it has. Uh, the, the establishment has ignored the fact that it has not worked for many parts of our country especially rural areas and especially areas that are away from the coastal elites quote unquote and the reason why it hasn't worked is because the model I mean, so, so for example the, there are in small town many small towns today and I discuss this in in the book a parent kid, adults whose parents by the way were, laid off in the first wa- wave of manufacturing outsourcing back in the 80s they, you know and already started those those small rural areas often started suffering today uh, those communities have been devastated and uh they they're many of the churches have moved away they're they're, they're all of their civic activities like their fourth of july parade and all, what's what created the community the community elements have eroded And a lot of this is economic because I think the establishment has shown disdain towards uh, this part of America for quite a long time. And when I say establishment, I mean both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, you know, as much as Hillary Clinton discussed the deplorables, Mitt Romney Romney talked about the takers. And I think, you know, the reason why Trump was such a savior to so many Americans is because he was the first he, he got it. He was a politician who wasn't really a politician, but who understood that he was one of, of them. He, he recognized the, the wrath, the anger, the brewing uh, feeling of being neglected by uh, white working class Americans. And he tapped into that in a huge way. And that's the emotional bond that he formed with so many Americans, which has been so powerful. Now, to your point, Renee, this is not an American-only phenomenon. All over the world, especially in liberal democracies, we're struggling with these forces. You can see what's going on in France today. Um, Much of the world is moving towards a a different form of of government. Autocracy is the model that seems to be working well. When I say well, I put that in air quotes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whether it's Xi's China or Putin's Russia, or Erdogan in Turkey, this notion of autocracy is easier. And one of the things that needs to be discussed, and I do so in American Schism, is why do we want a democracy in the first place? And why is that important? And I argue that democracy is, I hate, I hate to use this term, but it's a, an epistemologically superior form of government. And what that means is, epistemology is how we gain knowledge. And in an autocracy, edicts are handed down by the autocrat and people follow them or face the consequences. The whole concept of democracy is that we talk to each other and listen and learn and, and understand different perspectives and together come to a compromise solution. That's the model that Daniel Allen from Harvard talks in such eloquence about in much of her work, which is cited in, in my book. It, it, what does it mean to have a democracy and, and how do we do that? And why is it a better form of government? And why should we strive to have that? In one way, I believe this is the challenge of our time, Renee, if, if the 20th century to some degree can be characterized by a struggle between the our open form of society in America with other forms of repressive society, such as uh, fascism, Nazism, communism, that was very much the struggle of the 20th century. I think the struggle so far of the 21st century seems to be between that same form of open society and a model of autocracy that's not an illiberal society, as the model in Hungary is, where people cannot say whatever they want. There is not freedom of the press. There's a government-led narrative by the autocrat that keeps people in line. And, and that is becoming the model. I mean, it's, it's very tricky. In Xi's China... One could argue that from a utilitarian perspective, if we looked at, you know, one of the great utilitarian philosophers, John Stuart Mill, more Chinese today are better off than they were 30 years ago by far. There's a huge Chinese middle class. Um, So there's been a tremendous prosperity for many people in China, but it's still a repressive regime, I would argue.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and all those countries you mentioned, uh, uh, the other ones, the Russia, Turkey, Hungary, they're not right. really doing that great from a utilitarian yeah. point of view either. Or but, Brazil, but, would be
0: another example.
1: Yeah. It, right. Is there a country that you look toward that is getting democracy better, <laughs> if, if well, not perfectly, but? Yeah. yeah,
0: nobody's getting it perfectly, but I think Western Europe is doing better in some ways, even with all their problems. I mean, I think there are things we have to fix. Like, uh, for example, um, it's clear to me that, and I think to many Americans in the frustrated majority, that our political establishment, our political industry is broken. It's it's become, it's it spends much more money and effort at staying in office, at getting reelected that in solving problems. And there's been a lot written about this. So I think it has to be changed. I mean, our founders intended for the constitution to be malleable, to change over time with every generation. And I think we need, I argue for things in, in the book, American Schism. I argue for term limits and why they're important. I argue for a concept called ranked choice voting to break the lock of dominance that the two parties have on our system here. Uh, I mean, there are many structural things that can be done to improve our democracy. To answer your question, I think uh, I, in the book, I compare America often to France because, and the reason why I pick France is because France also, in many ways, is a, is a you know, of course, the French Revolution and American Revolutions were, were tied. They were part of one overall movement. And France also intended to had a, a secular state separate from church and from church and state and also as a multiracial society. Now they're not completely similar. There are great differences. France of course has tremendous uh, issues with its former colonies and, and, and a, a whole complex, a dynamic about uh, French citizens who, who are from colonial former colonial France. We, and we can talk about that It's really a, a whole topic in and of itself, but I think it's useful to see, how countries like France, how the Netherlands, how Germany are dealing with these issues. And that's another aspect of, of what's, what's useful about comparing what works and what doesn't work in a democratic republic.
1: Finally, Seth, you, you're saying that the national discourse needs to get back to being a debate about ideas. But we see the power of emotions like anger, hate, and fear of the feelings of tribalism and identity politics, how do we move from that to a more reasoned debate?
0: Renee, I think the answer to that question lies in how we started our conversation. I mentioned at the beginning that one of the motivations that led me on this path was that private sector leaders, my peers in industry, in society, had most recently in in, in the last couple of cycles put their heads in the sand. They didn't want to get involved. And I think it's those people, people in the frustrated majority who are the key to taking back the conversation, wrestling it back from the, the extremes and reestablishing, rehabilitating a conversation based on ideas, based on respect, based on uh, empirical observation and and, and reason. So that's this campaign called "Fight Unreason with Reason," and I'm actively promoting it, so that people who are in the in this frustrated majority can cannot be silent. So I think it's only going to get better if we we meaning the this, the seventy percent frustrated majority take back the conversation and reject out of hand the types of tactics that are used in. Often on Twitter and in social media today, which is insults, personal ad hominem attacks, uh, debate that does not use facts that that distorts ideas and that doesn't listen. I think those are the things that we have to reject in our conversation. And accordingly, for this past Thanksgiving holiday, I sent to all of my readers and listeners, I sent them a guide for how to have a conversation about important ideas over the Thanksgiving table. Without getting into arguments and fights, and and that's what I think we have to do more and more, as we discuss today.
1: It's a great idea, and uh, more power to you. And it's really to us. We we all have to be involved in it, and uh, you're setting a good example. Well, thank Th- you. thanks for your important insights. Sorry, well, Rene,
0: this is this has been such a pleasure for me to be with you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you for taking the time to share your views with us. My pleasure. Uh, And thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer series on ideas wherever you find your podcasts.